Thank you for listening. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit the Hay Player at hayfestival.org. Noswaitha, Kloisuligathli, good evening and welcome to Hay and to the third in the series which we are doing in partnership with Cambridge University. Sander van der Linden is a social psychologist at the University of Cambridge. Uh, his award-winning research interests include social influence, persuasion, human judgment and decision-making, and the psychology of risk and communication. He has a book coming out, unfortunately not quite in time for Hay. Uh, it will be out next month. It's called Risk and Uncertainty in a Post-Truth Society. Um, but it is out next month, so please look it up. His title, it, the lecture is titled Vaccinating Against Fake News. Please give a warm Hay welcome to Sander van der Linden. Thanks so much for uh, coming to, uh, to my talk and for uh, letting me talk to you guys about this, what I think is fascinating topic of uh, fake news. Um, I don't, well, I can't promise I have all the answers, but I do have some interesting questions and some, some research that we're doing that I think might be of interest that I uh, wanted to share with you today. But before I get to that, um, I want to sort of examine the idea of, of, you know, what is fake news? Are we living in a post-truth society? I know it feels like we are living in a post-truth society, but there is some interesting science around this. And then in terms of what, what are the consequences, what are the actual consequences of fake news? How is it affecting people and how can we quantify some of these impacts? And then I want to talk a little about some of our research um, about this idea of can we vaccinate each other um, against fake news, which uh, is, is something we've been working on that I'm quite excited to, uh, to share. So let's start with the beginning. Uh, I want to share a contested fact with you. Um, if I ask you, you're already feeling what's coming. Which crowd is bigger, right? So, <laughs> I'm focusing on the U.S. today, so I promise no Brexit, no Brexit jokes. Um, so, clearly, there's an answer here. But the answer that we've seen isn't always the one we expect, right? Largest crowd ever. Um, and it's quite interesting because you can do a few things with these images. You can crop this image um, you know, at, the, at, the, at the end line of the crowd so that it looks bigger. And how would you know if that's real or fake? Right? It becomes difficult uh, when people manipulate content online to judge what is real and what is fake. And even though we can clearly see the difference, sometimes people become motivated um, to arrive at the conclusions they want to arrive at. And I think that's part of the idea of, um, of post-truth. You know, since the presidency, I think there, at least 3,000 statements were made that were either false or inaccurate. So I think this sort of gives people the idea that we can now just say stuff blatantly um, that's completely untrue, and some people will believe it. During the 2016 election, the term fake news was used a lot. It came up as a, as a major term, of course. Fake news has been around forever. Um, but there are some particularities around what we're seeing uh, today that I think is quite interesting. So I was invited to attend this meeting at Wilton Park um, and this is David Kay. He's the uh, Special Rapporteur for the Protection for the Freedom of Speech at the United Nations. And he invited me uh, to attend this meeting along with you know, representatives from Google and Facebook and, and other companies. And I wasn't sh quite sure why he invited me. I'm a psychologist. Um, but he thought you know, it might be useful to have a, a sort of social science psychology perspective around the table. And it was an interesting meeting. And we tried to define the idea of, of fake news. And there were lots of different definitions, um, lots of different thoughts about fake news. Um, and it turned out to be quite, you know, quite a tricky subject. So the way that I've been thinking about this and the way that it sort of evolved in, in my thinking is that we can think about fake news in, in three different ways that I find helpful um, to describe the sort of various issues that we're dealing with. So the first is um, just human error, right? Um, there's satire, there's propaganda, misinformation, disinformation, and I think we're all using these terms now to denote fake news, but there are some important differences. So when people talk about simple human error, that's often what we actually mean when we say misinformation. So something that's just false or incorrect, and that includes simple human error. Um, and I'm not so sure that that's really what we're concerned about. Disinformation, though, is misinformation coupled with some psychological intent um, to actually deceive or harm other people. 
And political propaganda, is how, this is how I define it, is disinformation coupled with some political agenda. So disinformation doesn't always have to be political, um, but often it is. And I think the, the latter two is sort of the, the, the area that most people are concerned about, the deliberate attempts to mislead and harm other people with uh, targeted misinformation or disinformation, um, at, at which point that misinformation becomes weaponized by people who want to deceive other people. So I think that is sort of the, the core issue um, that we're dealing with. So if you look at the status of facts, you know, how good are people at discerning fake news? This is some of my favorite stats. So you know, about 50% of adults say they're very good at it, but when you actually survey people, about 4% of British adults were actually able to uh, tell the difference between real and fake news. Um, about 60%, 65% of Americans you know, feel confused over basic facts. 83% of Europeans think fake news is a problem. Um, but this is an interesting one. One in four Americans admit to sharing fake news, uh, even, even when you ask them. Um, so there's some concern uh, amongst people. There's some interesting research in schools that shows that children sometimes don't really see the difference between sponsored ads and real news. And so I think we're dealing with these sort of evolving issues of the media landscape um, that's not only fake news, but also the way that it's shared and propagated. Um, that's, that's a little concerning. So, it, you know, in, in the talks that I give on fake news, I always test the audience because I, I want to know um, you know, what we're dealing with. Um, and so here's a, here's a quiz. So two of these stories, um, they were all rightly reported, um, but two of them are fake and one's true. So the first one, Putin issues international arrest warrant for George Soros. Who think that that story was true? If you think it's true, let's, let's do a hand, hands up. Who think that's true? Okay, so the first headline, Putin issues international arrest warrant for George Soros. Okay, a few hands, not too much, not too much. How about the second one? Black Lives Matter thug protests President Trump with selfie, accidentally shoots himself in the face. <laughs> Who think that's true? Okay, good show of hands, good show of hands, bit divided there. What about the last one though? Passenger allowed onto flight after security confiscate his bomb. Who think that's true? <laughs> okay, bit divided here, already laughing. So. This is the correct answer, so the crowd over here, very good, very good. Um, now, I, I will tell you why. This happened in Canada, they're very friendly. So after, you know, <laughs> they confiscated his bomb, they let him onto the flight. But see, you know, it can be tricky to actually discern just from headlines what's, what's real and fake. Um, now, we, we see these headlines, you know, the eclipse of reason. Why do people disbelieve scientists? The science of why we don't believe in science how our brains fool us on climate, creationism, and the vaccine autism links, why facts don't change our minds. Interesting. Why do many reasonable people doubt science, you know, post-truth, and so on. Um, and I think, you know, th there's something to this. There is reason to be concerned about. But if you look at some of the stats, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's not that bad. So the most trusted professions, doctors, we know doctors are the most trusted expert, probably sometimes for good reason. Teachers, pretty high. So I think hairdressers are an untapped source uh, <laughs> of, uh, of confidence. You laugh, you laugh, but they're in the midst of, uh, of the social network, right? They're often, people share stuff with their hairdressers. It's a real phenomenon. Um, hugely underestimated. So UK scientists, professor, we're not doing so bad up there still uh, for now. Uh, doctors, again, you see the same. Journalists all the way at the bottom, unfortunately, civil servants. Uh, a bit better. This is, this is data from the UK. This is data from the US, very similar. You know, military is, is trusted in the US, but medicine, scientific community, pretty high up there. Again, the press, Congress, all the way at the bottom. And this is over, over decades. So it's been pretty stable, actually, over, over decades. So, you know, people still trust science, people still trust facts to some extent. So I don't think it's as bad as some people portray, but I do think there's reason to be concerned. And there's a specter of post-truth and, and decreasing trust in, in facts and numbers and science um, if we don't think about this um, in important ways. So how does this situation really affect us in terms of, in terms of you know, um, voting, public opinion, what's, what's really happening here? Um, you've all heard of echo chambers, I'm sure, the idea that you know, greater access to information online and selective exposure to ideological content um, 
basically just reinforces what we already hear and what we want to believe and what our friends believe. And it's this, you know, kind of like sticking your head in an echo chamber and everyone's liking your stuff, uh, agreeing with you, feels good. Um, and that, you know, social media does magnify that phenomenon. It's true. And it leads to extremism and, and polarization. Um, and that is something to, to look out for. So, for example, this is data from the, U from the U.S., from MIT. Um, and these are networks. Um, bubbles, if you will, of Trump and Clinton supporters, for example. So you see Trump supporters over there, very cohesive, very tight uh, in-group, right? So everyone's sort of tight together, not really talking to the other side. Um, although Clinton supporters are a bit more sp spread out, they're still, you know, they're still a pretty cohesive group. Um, and you see that, you see that division um, that's happening that I think is, is important to note. And you see the same when you actually look at uh, political data. So here's the median position of Democrats and Republicans in the United States, for example, in 1994. Now let me show you the same graph, 2014, right? So people are growing apart. Um, and what that means is that there's less and less common ground, and that makes having conversations much more difficult. And I think the purpose of a lot of fake news is to drive a wedge between people, to try to further polarization, um, and to try to you know, influence people in ways that are undesirable often. So I wrote, I wrote this article for Scientific American a few, uh, few years ago now. Um, psychological weapons of mass persuasion, and in that article, I try to discern, you know, what what the effect is of fake news on on people, and it's very difficult. So there's there's two ideas here. One, it, does fake news affect elections? Does it swing votes? This is very difficult to say from the data that we have and the data that's not available to us. So a lot of data from Facebook, Twitter, and all of these companies aren't available to us, right? Millions of data data points on people's networks. We just don't have the data um, as scientists. We only get snapshots of, of data, and then we can make inferences about that. We we can do experiments, we do surveys, um, but it's very hard to actually quantify this. Um, now, on the other hand, there's lots of research that shows that exposure to fake content, manipulated content, fake news, um, disinformation, does influence people's opinions, it does create echo chambers and filter bubbles, and it does affect online sentiment. And what's interesting is, yeah, so maybe there's a lot of uncertainty about how that translates into concrete votes, because you know, when people go out and vote, um, Lots of stuff happens in between, so it's, you know, it's, it's difficult to predict and, and quantify. Um, but I think sometimes what we're missing is that when we look at important societal outcomes like Brexit, the US presidential election, it's a few percentage points. So if this information only, if the conversion rate you know, of, of just massively spreading fake information, and you, know, you, you affect some attitudes and some opinions, but even when the conversion rate is very small, that can still matter for societal outcomes, if you convince 1% of the uh, you know, people that you're reaching um, to you know, change their vote in a certain way, that can still matter, because a lot of important things are now being decided on very small margins. Um, so I do think that in the end, it's consequential. So what, what can we do about it? And that's one of the questions we've been interested in in, uh, in some of the research. And you know, th this has been dubbed a, a psychological vaccine against fake news. Um, I, should, I should preface that it's, it's, it's a metaphor. Um, but I think it's, it's a useful metaphor for trying to understand how we can tackle this issue at the individual level without legislation, without regulation, uh, just empowering people and ourselves at the individual level. Um, I was asked to give a quote for the, for the festival. So I said, you know, modern disinformation requires a new defense against the dark arts, uh, uh, sort of a Harry Potter metaphor here. I do think that it's an interesting, uh, an interesting metaphor. You can see me here practicing the... Uh, uh, the defense against the dark, waiting off the conspiracy theories. Um, but, but there is something to this. In fact, here's a real quote from uh, Professor Snape. Your defenses must therefore be as flexible and inventive as the arts that you seek to undo. Um, and that's something that has been sort of driving our research in the sense that if you want to do something about fake news and the way it's evolving, and artificial intelligence, and all the different ways that this is evolving, uh, we need to be flexible in our approach and our thinking um, to try to undo um, some of the influence that it's having. Um, and it turns out that you can model the spread of information much like the way that a virus spreads. So if you look at models from public health and epidemiology, you can actually see similarities between how a virus spreads and how information spreads. And so logically, that leads to the idea um, that you might then also be able to vaccinate against fake news and to inoculate networks and, and populations. And that's sort of where, where we started this idea from. I should say I have a clever graduate student who you know, came up to me and, and she said, you, know, you do know that this you know, defense against the dark arts, you know, this was a cursed role in the book. So I'm not sure you know, um, 
how happy we should be to, to take on this role. So let's see, we're still, we're still going for now. So here's, um, here's the idea of the, of the vaccine metaphor. Um, just as regular vaccines trigger anti-immune um, bodies in the, uh, in the immune system to help confer resistance against future infection, right, they trigger antibodies, you can do the same with information. By preemptively exposing people to a little bit of fake news, you can cultivate mental antibodies and to try to create cognitive resistance against fake news. So that's really what the metaphor is about, that just as with vaccines, you can inject people with a weakened dose of a virus, you can inject people with a weakened dose of fake news to help confer resistance um, when people are actually exposed later on um, to the virus. Now, the news, we... we we talk about inoculation because the scientific process is inoculation, but you know, fake news vaccine, I guess, I guess that works too. Uh, it's a bit catchier, and the vaccine metaphor is perhaps a bit easier to, to understand. One clever journalist called me and they said, is this fake news? I said, I oh, know, you're the journalist, <laughs> right? You figure it out. Right, um, so th there is a parallel to the, to the idea of a, of a vaccine and how it works um, and how that can be tested. Um, now, the psychological one has two components. It has an emotional component or an effective component, which is about warning people um, of some informational threat that you're about to be exposed to some misinformation or there is disinformation, so you should you know, pay attention. Because half of our awareness sometimes browsing online, lots of windows open, you know, we peripherally process a lot of information. And, and we know from a lot of psychology research that, in fact, it's easier to process information you already agree with, it's fluent. So if you come across something you already agree with, your brain kind of, oh yeah, that makes sense, you know. Um, and so actually making sure that we are, people are aware when they're processing information is the first step uh, in getting resilience. Then the second one is what we call refutational preemption. I'm not sure who came up with that, right? It's a really uh, complicated term. Refutational preemption. I have to practice this several times before um, I was able to say this correctly. Um, and so what we really mean by this is pre-bunking. So I prefer the term pre-bunking, and not only because it's easier than refutational preemption, um, but also because it aligns nicely with the idea of debunking. So debunking is basically the current response to fake news. Everyone's debunking, fact-checking. And we know from a lot of research in psychology that debunking is just not as effective. Why is it not effective? It's because when you repeat a myth, it reinforces the links in our memory associated with that myth, and people forget about the correction. So if I start something with Pizzagate, that just activates all your, all your memories about Pizzagate um, and strengthens the association that Hillary Clinton was somehow involved uh, in, the, in a sex ring, and so on. And it just it, it makes sure that this idea keeps on, keeps on living in people's minds. And so debunking is just not as effective. Uh, the vaccine metaphor is based on the idea that prevention is better than cure, right? It's trying to get ahead of the game. Um, so how much better would it be if we didn't try to correct things after the fact, which is so much more difficult just because the way that our minds and our memory works, um, what if we could prevent it from happening in the first place? And that's really what the idea of pre-bunking is about. And then through sort of this internal rehearsal, um, we can create resistance against, against facts. And I'll, I'll show you some experiments of how we started doing this in the, in the lab in a really controlled way, and of course somewhat contrived because it's done in the lab. And then we sort of moved to the schools and online versions of, of a gamified approach um, that, shows, that shows some of the same principles. So we needed to start with a fact that we know that this is being disputed, perhaps more so in the United States than in the United Kingdom. And one of those facts is that most scientists agree that the climate change is happening, which of course is also a very important issue. Uh, lots of disinformation exists about this issue, so it was something that we could study. Um, there's a really interesting book, not my book, uh, it's called Merchants of Doubt, and it talks about how companies have tried to mislead the public for decades on various issues like the link between smoking and lung cancer, but also the link between CO2 emissions and climate change, and this is very well documented. What's interesting, though, is that these campaigns use some of the same techniques that are being used now, and they're very common techniques, in fact, to try to persuade and, and influence people. Uh, this is one of them. So this was a real ad. You know, more doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette. Um, and th these were tobacco industries trying to promote fake experts, right? That the most trusted expert smokes. Um, and this is a very common influence technique. 
Later in the 90s, a lot of tobacco companies were forced in a Supreme Court decision to admit that they deliberately misled people for a very long time uh, on this issue. Um, this is a leaked memo from a political strategist about global warming, basically saying voters believe there's no consensus about global warming within the scientific community. Um, should the public come to believe that the scientific issues are settled, their views about global warming will change accordingly. Unfortunately, this is true. We've tested this hypothesis in the lab uh, multiple times. Um, it turns out that this issue of, of scientific agreement matters a lot. But what's more concerning is that these disinformation campaigns were, were real. And so we thought we could, we could actually test this out and see what happens when we expose people to fake news uh, about the issue of, of scientific agreement on climate change. Um, and then if we inoculate people, are they more resistant um, at the end? So what happens when you just show people the facts? We just showed people, you know, most scientists agree that climate change is happening. And then we ask people, you know, what percent of scientists do you think agree on the issue of climate change? Do you believe that humans are causing global warming and so on? And we did this at the beginning and at the end of the experiment. Um, and what you see is that, you know, in a vacuum, people have no problem adjusting their views towards the facts. Right? That, that's good news. People are susceptible to the facts. But of course, we're not operating in a vacuum. Um, so we thought, well, what if we expose people to misinformation? This is a real website. Um, 31,000 American scientists signed this petition that global warming isn't real. It's not happening. Um, and what's really interesting is this is a bogus petition. And I'll, I'll share some of the reasons uh, in a second of why this is a bogus petition. Um, but basically, this is a real website. So we expose people to this website. Um, and then it, you know, it goes down, which is bad in itself, so that it's actually influencing people's opinion on climate change. But people's judgments actually go down. And then we thought, well, let's mimic the current media environment. Let's give people two conflicting cues and see how they respond. Um, and we thought, well, maybe the fake news you know, detracts from the facts a little. But what we, what we found was actually shocking. And this was with thousands of people in the United States, I should say, in the United States. Um, is that the, the fake news just canceled out the power of facts completely. So when we showed people um, two conflicting cues, it just canceled out the value of facts uh, uh, in a rather drastic way. And I think this was a really shocking uh, conclusion, perhaps not entirely unexpected, um, but somewhat concerning. So for the inoculation part, we split it out into, into this idea of forewarning people um, and sort of the, the full inoculation. So how does this work? Beforehand, we told people, listen, there are some political actors trying to mislead you uh, on some of these issues, so you should be aware of that. And then we used the idea of pre-bunking. And the pre-bunk was, you know, you may have heard of some petition, but in fact, you should know that some of the signatories on this petition include Charles Darwin, the Spice Girls, uh, and, this, and this is real, you know, this, 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 there's no quality control in this petition. Um, and so, you know, you know, beforehand we told people this, and then we looked at what happens when you expose people to fake news later on in the experiment, and we, we found not full immunity compared to the facts condition, um, but pretty good. People were more resistant and were less likely to be duped uh, by this sort of online manipulation attempts uh, on, on some of these important issues. And it didn't matter what your ideology was, by the way, and it didn't matter if you believed in climate change or not from the beginning. Nobody likes to be duped. Um, so this was, this was a pretty good result. We, we still had some important questions, though. A journalist called us and he said, this is great, but you can't pre-bunk every issue. How are you going to pre-bunk every issue that comes out? Right? There's, a, there's a practical difficulty here. Um, and so we started thinking, is there a way to scale this idea of the vaccine? It's, perhaps it's true that you can't pre-bunk every issue. And uh, I have a very clever uh, student I work with who came up with uh, a really good idea um, of trying to do this. And uh, I use a, a magic metaphor to try to explain um, what we're going to do here. But the first idea is this. If you, if you go to a magic show, you see a trick, you know, getting, getting split in half in a box. Most people at first, they don't know how it works, right? You're duped by the, by the trick the first time you see it. So I could give you the sort of passive inoculation kind of what we did in the climate change experiment. We give people facts beforehand and explain how it works, um, sort of a scientific description of, of how the box works and how the trick works. Or, and here's the new approach, we could do something active and experiential and let you try to figure it out. And the idea here is that you let people figure out how the trick works on their own because that's a much more powerful way to learn something because people learn by association and not necessarily just from sort of cold hard facts. 
you know, we are experiences. We experience the world through our senses. We learn better when we experience things. We remember things better when we experience things. So why not let people do it um, on their own? And this is John here. Um, we set up a, an experiment at some Dutch schools that we went to, and we thought, why not make this more fun for people? Um, so we turned it into a game. And in the game, you're not sort of pre-bunking a, a specific story, but what you're doing is you're becoming a fake news tycoon. So essentially, it's up to you. You're going to produce fake news, and you get assigned a role. You could be the clickbait monger, or the conspiracy theorist, the alarmist, and so on, and you have to create an article that's consistent with that role. So this is in Dutch, um, but I'll show you some, some English examples. So basically, there's a, a shocking headline, uh, you know, evocative images, stuff's burning. Um, and then you have to structure the article in a way that's consistent with your role. So if you're a conspiracy theorist, you want to flow conspiracy theories, and so on. And so we thought, what better way is there to let people learn about fake news than to step into the shoes of someone who's actively trying to deceive you uh, and learn it that way? Uh, what better way is there to gain resistance to something once you know how the trick works, right? And that's, that was really the idea behind the game. And we tested this with um, students uh, who played our game and then those who were in a control group who just followed their regular sort of lesson plan, and we tested them afterwards. And in the English version, we have various characters, you know, Dennis in denial, um, Dana and Fox, the co-conspirators. And so you could, you could take on lots of different roles. And then we, we exposed people to total fake news that they hadn't seen before, something we made up. Um, and it was framed in two different ways. It was, you know, fake news about migrants coming to the Netherlands uh, or the refugee camps. You know, we're just basically treating people like uh, they did in World War II. So heavily exaggerated content to try to evoke emotions, to drive people apart, and so on. And we found that people who played the game, students who played the game, were less, were more resistant um, and less likely to be duped uh, by these fake articles. And the last part of the story is that there was an, uh, another important element uh, here that the paper version of the game didn't have. It wasn't online. So, so much of, of what's going on is happening online now. And so we wondered, can we scale this? Also, if you imagine that we go out and we test people, you know, going into schools, uh, um, students not showing up to the right treatment versus control group, you know, calling in sick. Um, um, it makes the experiment more difficult. So we thought, how can we scale this in a way that allows us to collect lots of responses from people um, and also give, uh, essentially, uh, people a tool that they can share and use um, themselves. And so I thought, let's, let's go online with this and make this even more fun, hopefully. Uh, and this is where the idea of bad news came from. Bad news is a game, as, as the articles say here, that let, basically let you um, create your own fake news empire. And you can play it. The website's getbadnews.com. We designed this in collaboration with the Dutch Media uh, Collective. Uh, they're called Bad News, and they create novel media literacy tools. Um, and this was an interesting partnership. Um, and John, the graduate student I mentioned earlier, uh, did a lot of the, the actual programming of, uh, of the content. Um, but it's really interesting in that this version of the game allows you to gain followers. So you have a follower meter, and the idea is to gain as many followers as you can while not losing credibility. So you also have a credibility meter. And basically, you start posting content on social media, and you earn badges for mastering techniques uh, that are common to most fake news. So rather than you know, talking about specific issues, we started to move away from that and focus more on the techniques that underlie most information. So what better way is there to gain resistance against all fake news, um, more or less, uh, than by exposing uh, the techniques that underlie the production of most information? So that regardless whether it's climate change or vaccines or some other issue um, on which misinformation is being produced, people are more likely um, to recognize it and be less likely to, to, to be influenced by it. So here's the game. Here's your follower meter, uh, and here's your credibility meter, and you are about to start your empire. And you know, here you saw the mainstream media has one massive conspiracy, hashtag fake news. Um, and so it, it starts out with the idea that you can create you know, your own sort of trending hashtag, uh, gain followers, but you can't get too ridiculous. So for example, okay, here, here you're impersonating Donald Trump. After long deliberation with my generals, I've decided to declare war in North Korea, hashtag Kim Jong-un. <laughs> Sounds like do something Donald Trump would say. Um, and so uh, basically what's happening here is this is part of the, what we call the impersonation badge. So a big thing online is impersonating other people. Um, so you can see here that Donald J. Trump, the M is an N, 
right? So we've manipulated the Twitter handle. Most people don't see this the first time around, but they do when we test them later on at the end uh, after playing with a new example. Um, after people have mastered this technique, they do recognize it, and they're not fooled by the same trick uh, the second time around. And some of these things are subtle, and some are, are more obvious. Um, here we're impersonating NASA, meteorite alert, large space object set to hit the US West Coast, hashtag be safe. Um, and so, you know, the stories sort of develop uh, organically. Here are all the badges. So we teach people about polarization, driving a wedge between two groups, impersonation, conspiracies, uh, trolling other people online. So this gets pretty intense. You know, it, it's all fictional, but it's, you know, modeled after real-world events. So a plane goes missing, you start trolling the airline company, uh, create conspiracies about it, and so on. Uh, the use of emotions, discrediting your fake news. Um, and so, essentially, it teaches people about these sort of main tactics that underlie the production uh, of a lot of um, this information. After you complete a level, you get a badge that basically says you've mastered this technique, now you progress to the next level, and when you've completed all badges, um, you get, you get your, your fake news master uh, uh, of the dark arts uh, certificate. Um, now, the way that we designed this game is that you can always pick a side. So the idea is not that you, know, you have to learn uh, about a specific issue. You can make fun of the government. You can make fun of big corporations. Uh, you can blame the police. You can uh, blame other groups. It's, it's sort of balanced across the political spectrum because we wanted you know, people from all uh, walks of life to, to learn about these techniques uh, in, in, a, in a transparent way. Um, and so you can pick your own path in the game. Um, but there is a narrator, which we call the voice of reason, that nudges you to do the wrong thing here and not be uh, an ethical journalist. There's other games for, uh, uh, for that. Um, and so, you know, if you don't want to play the game, you can, you can opt out and, and die a, a moral hero, uh, so to speak, uh, if you're uncomfortable with, uh, with proceeding. Okay, so, so does this work? And so we got hundreds of thousands of people who play this game. Um, so we can actually test whether or not this works. Uh, to some extent. So at the beginning, we give people a battery of fake tweets and fake headlines. People play the game. And then at the end, we give people another battery of fake tweets and headlines and then see um, if they improve in their ability to spot um, some of these techniques. And the fake, the fake headlines we give people are examples of the, of the techniques that are being used, but not the same examples as in the game. So that makes it harder, right? You learn using one example, but then you, we test you with a different one. So for example, um, this one's outdated now because we've all seen Game of Thrones and we're all disappointed, I know. Um, but here we impersonated HBO. It says the eighth season of Game of Thrones will be postponed to a salary dispute. Sounds plausible, right? But total fake news. We made that one up. Um, and so you rate how reliable um, these headlines are, and then we look at um, you know, how people are doing. Hey, Leo DiCaprio, it's snowing and freezing in New York. Could use some of that global warming you're always going on about. Right? This is part of the trolling badge, so here you're trolling Leonardo DiCaprio, um, and so on. And so here are the results from about 30,000 data points. And what we find here is that these real news items, these bars, are real news. So we wanted to make sure that we just don't make people more skeptical about all news. Right? Uh, so we had examples that were real in there. People don't move on those pre-post. Right? And so by following the inoculation metaphor, by exposing people to weakened strategies um, of fake news, we're sort of you know, honing in on the specific antibodies uh, and not sort of a broad sort of, you know, spectrum that kills all of the antibodies. Uh, so we're not making people more skeptical about news in general. And these other bars here, so the darker bars of the post gameplay, um, are the, the fake news badges. And you see here that there are significant differences. Um, they're not huge, because it's difficult to, to actually do, right? But there are uh, significant and, and moderate in size, I would say, that after playing the game, people think these fake headlines are indeed less uh, reliable than they did before. Now, you can see here what happens across different age groups. Uh, basically, the dots you can see in the middle, these dots here, they're very close to each other. So basically, there's no meaningful differences based on your education, how old or how young you are, how liberal or how conservative you are, and so on. Everyone, uh, luckily, is learning in the game. There are some tiny differences between groups, but I wouldn't really describe these as, um, as very meaningful. Now, as any good scientist, we did this online. We decided to replicate this and pre-register our hypotheses and our plans about how everything would work. Uh, pre-registration is something you do beforehand so that you, you can't change the results or your conclusions sort of afterwards. Um, but this time, we randomly assigned people to either our game or another game. Some of you might know this game, Tetris. 
Um, and it was quite interesting. Some of the participants in our research, they left a response saying, is this what Cambridge University has come to? Uh, <laughs> make people play Tetris for 30 minutes. Uh, so I said, yes, that is what we're doing. But I'll show you why this was important. So again, here are the results. The dark bars um, are the, the post-game scores. They're, they're lower, meaning people think fake news is less reliable across all of these levels, all of these sort of techniques that we teach people about in the, in the game. Um, and this is the control group. Nothing happens in the control group. Um, I just want to make sure that if you play a game, we don't see the same result, right? It uh, might, might seem obvious, but it's something important to exclude. If you play Tetris, it won't cure you in terms of uh, um, fake news. How about over time? You know, once we give this talk, people are wondering, well, how long does this last? It's great that we have this inoculation effect, but how long does it last? And we know lots of effects in psychology and more generally, you know, it's very difficult to predict people's behavior. Our behavior is dynamic, it changes, right? It's very difficult to, to sustain behavior change uh, in the long term. Think about, you know, quitting smoking, losing weight. Um, you know, it, it takes a long time to commit to something and to, to stick with it. Uh, so we wanted to know how long does this actually work. So this was immediately after the, the game, the, the yellow bar here. And then we started following up with people. One week later, two weeks later, three weeks later, a whole month later. Uh, and pretty surprisingly, in the control group, of course, nothing changed. But in the, in the game, the effect remained stable for about a year. So after three weeks, we followed up with people who gave them you know, a series of fake headlines. Um, and the inoculation effect remained pretty stable. Um, for, for over a month. It does start to decay eventually, and maybe following the vaccine metaphor, you need sort of a booster and play again, um, and so on. So I just want to end on some of the things that we're doing next and why we think this is important and, and some of the initiatives that we've been working on with this sort of new interactive way of uh, teaching people about misinformation and fake news and how this is used and can be used. Um, so we're lucky to receive some, some design awards for the game. You know, I, I'm not a graphic designer, but it, it's sort of an ironic uh, arcade-style uh, visual design. But apparently, the gaming community was really into it. Um, and so they, they were pleased with it. And the London Design Museum had it on display. You see one victim here playing our game, uh, a special Brexit version of the game um, that we had on display uh, in the museum. There's one on display in Australia for Games for Peace um, that we're uh, a part of, and the team, the organization that produces the game. and. Uh, and does a lot of the programming. We gave some testimony in the parliament about what we think is happening with fake news and some of these results. Uh, and really trying to, 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 to shift the, the agenda from talking about not debunking, but pre-bunking. Um, I think we'd be in so much less trouble if we were able to preemptively protect uh, people and to preemptively um, inoculate ourselves and other people uh, against false content because undoing the damage when it's already done is just so much more difficult. That's why I think debunking uh, isn't, it's, it's a necessary second line of defense. And I do think fact checking is important, real time fact checking is important. Um, but I think it's the second line of defense. I think the first line of defense should be um, pre bunking. And this is sort of about the new science of, of pre bunking. Uh, we work with the UK government who has translated the game into 15 languages now. So we're continuing to translate the game in many languages. This is Swedish, Dutch, Arabic, um, pretty much every major language the game is available in now. Um, one interesting thing that allows us to do is to do cross-cultural testing with this. So how does fake news work in, in different cultures and different contexts, and how do people learn there? We need more evidence from various cultures and how that, you know, how that might change, especially in countries where propaganda, you know, where people have been exposed to, to decades of propaganda. Um, uh, they might have very different ideas about some of these issues. Um, so we're doing um, a lot on that. There's a kid's version. So a lot of this content is a bit adult, right? So we have a special kid's version of the game called Bad News Junior. Um, you can learn about fake news through SpongeBob, um, as an example. Um, but basically here, you learn the same techniques, but in a slightly different role. Um, so here you're going to impersonate the, uh, basically the head of the school. Uh, and you're going to start spreading fake news, right? Attention, school will be closed tomorrow. Um, and basically, you start spreading fake news in a, in a school contest. But you learn the same techniques, and we can test uh, things in the same way. We work with some social media companies, um, WhatsApp, for example. So WhatsApp has very serious problems. Um, if you remember some of the lynchings that happened in India uh, as a direct result of rumors that were being spread on, on WhatsApp about false kidnapping. So there were rumors that somebody had been kidnapped. Uh, 
you know, was totally fake, but it actually resulted uh, in some serious consequences of people, you know, ag being aggressive and harming each other. Um, and they can't moderate the content on the WhatsApp platform, or at least they won't, because it's end-to-end -end encryption, so they can't moderate the actual content. So we work with them on creating a special version of the game um, that um, allows or helps people think about how to, you know, responsibly use um, WhatsApp in the terms of, of group psychology. Because WhatsApp is different from Twitter in the sense that you're part of a group, and so there's a whole group psychology element to it. You receive messages from people you trust already, um, right? And you spread things as groups grow, and they increase their influence. And so it's a whole, a whole different game, uh, but still important lessons that can be learned from thinking about what's, um, WhatsApp. Um, and we like to use the same platform technology, right, that's being used to create some of these problems to, to actually then go and try and, and fix it. Um, we use the Behavioral Insights team on testing some of these materials in UK schools. Um, and uh, we've done some pilot studies, and we hope to roll this out in a much larger context where we can continue to evaluate this, uh, this approach. Um, but I'll end it there, because I see we have some time left, and I'll have to have a discussion with you and get questions and, and, and feedback uh, about what we're doing, because um, we're really hoping to uh, continue this idea of, of pre-bunking, of pre the idea that prevention is better than cure when it comes to uh, misinformation. And some of the, the, future, the future of truth, right? Artificial intelligence, deep fakes, you have seen, you know, fake Obama, which is basically you know, an AI algorithm uh, mimicking other people online. I think the challenges will get tougher. Um, it will be much more difficult to recognize and discern uh, truth from fact, from fiction. Um, and some of the tools that we're trying to uh, develop, essentially, as viruses um, evolve, um, so do vaccines. And so we're trying to update um, our materials and stay ahead of the game as much as possible. So thank you for your attention and for listening. Yes, please. Go ahead. Just a quick question. Do you think that self-inoculation is going to be a matter of choice and that um, some people don't want to be inoculated and other people will? There are going to be some people more convinced about what they believe and not really wanting to know whether it's true or not. Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. I think when it comes to the, the, this idea of the content-specific inoculation, it can be more difficult because you're talking about a specific issue that somebody may disagree with, for example. Um, but the idea of self-inoculation uh, is partly premised on, on the idea that people do have a common motivation not to be duped. And so you're essentially helping to warn other people about content that is objectively false. That might not always um, uh, be easy to do if people don't agree on the content. This is why with the, with the game, we start focusing on the techniques that underlie uh, the production of disinformation rather than tell people what's right or wrong about specific content. And our hope is with this more indirect approach is that rather than directly confronting people about what they believe to be true or not, is to empower people with the ability to discern what's true or fake um, by having knowledge of these techniques. So for example, in the polarization badge, you will be exposed to, to you know, using uh, specific tactics to try to polarize groups in, a, in quite a ridiculous way. But after you've gone through the badge, you kind of realize that a lot of headlines are just focused at getting you um, angry and upset and, and hate the other side more. Uh, even if we don't agree on the issues, I think once people become aware of that and they recognize that tactic, they have the choice at least uh, to be less influenced by it. I don't think people will always choose to be less influenced uh, uh, by it necessarily, um, but I think this indirect way is perhaps uh, uh, less confrontational um, and makes people more likely uh, to, to use these tools rather than to, to directly tell people that they're wrong. So I think often what we do is we like to tell people they're wrong in a very direct way, uh, and that can backfire, and we know that that can backfire, and so hence the, uh, the, the sort of the more indirect approach. Uh, but you can certainly inoculate people against specific uh, content as well, and we've shown that that can even work when people have prior beliefs um, that go contrary to the idea. So for example, in the experiment of climate change, there were people in the experiment who didn't believe in climate change, and they still updated their beliefs towards the right answer in the inoculation approach, uh, but not in some of the other conditions, uh, for example. So I think the idea of inoculation 
uh, does have a particular appeal. Uh, but I should stress that in none of these cases there's full immunity, right? So it doesn't work in the same way. Uh, there was there's sort of partial immunity because people will always, in the psychological sense, rather than the sort of physical uh, medical sense, people will always cling on to, to certain beliefs. So I, I don't think the idea of full immunity uh, is perhaps realistic. But what I do hope is that we can do get to the idea of herd immunity, that once you've inoculated enough people, there will be herd immunity. And maybe this is uh, maybe a cop-out to, 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 to the point you're making, but I do think that if you can inoculate enough people, you can allow some people to have you know, undesirable beliefs, uh, but if enough people do have the correct sort of belief or the scientific belief, then their influence will be limited. And I think that's the key aspect, that once you can inoculate enough people, um, you will have herd immunity. And even though some people go on and have harmful beliefs or beliefs that might harm other people, um, they will be, their influence will be limited. You've kind of just answered my question a little bit there, because in, in 1998, Andrew Wakefield published an article that said right. the MMR vaccine causes autism. Now, that has been utterly, completely debunked. He has been struck off the GMC register, and yet we're still in the grasp of the biggest measles outbreak in the US in pretty much living memory, as far as I can tell. How do we penetrate those hardcore enclaves where, despite, this not, that despite everyone knowing this is fake news, they are still clinging on, will not change their opinion, and are putting the public at risk? Yes, uh, I, I think... I won't, you know, repeat the, 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 the same answer again, but, but I do think it, it uh, you make an important point, and I do think it, that what I just said is indeed part of the answer. Um, but when it comes to vaccines and vaccine hesitancy, and, and I've talked about this uh, quite a bit in, in the media, is I do think the, the current response is completely reactive. It's sort of, oh, let's debunk it now that, you know, it's gone viral in New York and California, and now we have all these problems. Let's try to fact check and debunk. And I think... If we had just preemptively protected people from falling prey to some of these misinformation myths, um, the damage, even though there might still be damage, would have been less. Um, and so I do think this idea of pre-bunking and getting ahead of the game is useful because it is the, the exact same strategies that occur over and over again with vaccines. Spreading out the schedule is safer for kids. Um, the vaccine autism link. The government is implanting nodes in your brain through, you know, uh, and so on. From you have a whole spectrum of of, of quite odd myths about vaccines um, that recur in different forms, time and time again. Um, so I do think that you can try to preemptively vaccinate people against these sort of myths by exposing them to weakened examples and and sort of creating cognitive resistance. When you talk about anti-vaccination communities, I think it's slightly more difficult because those communities are marginalized or entrenched. Um, the norms are there are not to vaccinate. Even when you can penetrate those communities with scientific facts, it just doesn't resonate with people uh, because you know people look to their neighbors, and we all look to other people in terms of what they're doing. And you know, if you're in a community that doesn't do something, um, s the value of scientific facts uh, won't weigh in uh, very much. So I think this is a very complicated issue. And now we're you know talking about legislating and forcing people to do things which can have undesirable consequences as well. Um, so I do I do believe in the the approach of empowering people at the individual level, uh, but I also recognize that you can't reach, uh, reach anyone with that. But to, to sort of briefly answer your question, I do think that herd immunity is the answer here, because there will be people that are completely resistant to, you know, reason or persuasion, um, and that's fine in, in, in some ways, but if you can protect enough people from being duped by this, um, then their influence will be limited. And I think that's a very, it's just as powerful a concept as it is for vaccines themselves, because that is what vaccination is based on, right? That if enough people are vaccinated, um, it will offer protection even to those who aren't vaccinated. And I think the, the, the same idea implies here. And there's misinformation everyone falls prey to. And it's not because people are dumb or, you know, because they've been um, lower educated and so on. I think there are some things everyone's concerned about, right? I can tell you a convincing story about how spreading, the, uh, spreading out the schedule is safer for your kid, right? It's going to sound very appealing. Um, so it's not necessarily um, that it's because, you know, people s sort of, you know, can't reason in a, in a functional way. I think misinformation is very tricky. It's very sticky, and it's easy to be, relatively easy to be manipulated by content. And I think we can prevent that for most people, um, and that will have beneficial effects even if we can't reach everyone. Hi. Um, I was kind of wondering how you, how you find out what, like, how you distinct, 
how you define what fake news is. <coughs> because obviously you have the fake news where um, that could that could be passed around, but someone knows that it is in fact fake news. So like you have the obvious fake news, but about the news that we at first trust, but then is falsified. Like how it, are we talking about fake news in the terms of fake news that we already know is fake? Or like how do we find out whether something's fake news? Like would we trust something from a trusted source? Are we meant to believe that? That wasn't very well worded. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I get it. I get it. It's a great, it's a great question. Um, so I, I guess there's two answers. One was the sort of the slide that I showed at the beginning that um, part of our recommendation to the D Department of uh, Sport, Media, and Culture was to not use the term fake news because it's a politicized term and it's a rhetorical device used to d discredit other people, and to use this scheme that some misinformation is just information that is incorrect, regardless of whether it was simple human error or anything else. Disinformation is misinformation coupled with some psychological intention to actually deceive and harm other people. So disinformation is stuff that's incorrect for whatever reason, but also used to act, you know, deliberately mislead people. And then propaganda is disinformation um, that is coupled with some specific political uh, agenda. Um, so rather than fake news, I distinguish between those three levels, um, misinformation, disinformation, and propaganda, and I think that helps us be more specific about what it is that we're talking about. Are we dealing with bad intent? Was it just a simple error? Is there a political agenda? Uh, and so on. The other part of the answer, I think, is that, yes, a lot of research actually uses just examples of, of objective fake news. This is objectively false, this is objectively true. Can people recognize it? And I think at, th at that point it just becomes a memory exercise to some extent. Either you remember something was real or fake. What the game is doing, and a, a lot of our approach is actually premised not on the, the examples that are objectively true or, or false, but the gray area in between. The techniques that are used um, to influence people to form a certain opinion. So stuff that has a grain of truth of it or could be true, uh, but is being manipulated with emotional sort of valenced words, uh, by using you know, polarization techniques, by adding a little bit of conspiracy to it, uh, by trolling other people, by deflecting away from the real issue. So it's not that it's 100% fake, but it's that the most, in fact, this is where most fake news is, I would say, if we have to use that term. It's not on this is 100% false or 100% true. Most of it is in this gray area of there's some grain of truth here, but this is really designed to you know, influence you and change your mind in some way or to upset you or to cause outrage in, in some other way. And I think that's, that's the concerning element of a lot of the debate, and that's sort of what we're focusing on here to help people discern that. Um, and this is why this game is different from, let's say, you know, Here's a game about how to be a good journalist, and, he, and you know, this is th th these are cues about what's an accurate source. Um, you know, we can teach people about what are good sources and what are bad sources, but that's not what we're doing here. We're sort of focusing on the techniques that are used in the production of disinformation. And I do think on a personal level it's useful to, to think about sources and so on. Um, for example, I think it's useful to use two cues, um, the political bias of the outlet. All outlets have political bias, right? That's fine. Uh, and their accuracy rating. So some, some outlets are politically biased, but also very low accuracy, right? Some outlets are politically biased, but have very high accuracy. And I think those two cues are useful to keep in mind for people more generally. Every outlet has a political bias, but we want to pair that with their accuracy level. Um, I can name a few, right? We all know, we all, we all know the examples of, of, of where they're slanted and what their accuracy uh, level is. But I think that could be a good, a good cue um, that I use myself uh, when I read news. Oh yeah, what's the, you know, what's the political slant you know, of this outlet and how accurate are they? Um, hello. In the corner. Uh, was there not a, another Cambridge academic? I think the name was Kosogan, um, Dr. Mm. Kosogan, who was involved in using Facebook research um, and arguably attempted to influence some important elections recently. I wondered what you thought about that. And given the fact that your research would have therefore gone through a, an ethics committee and been scrutinised very carefully, uh, were there any uh, risks or concerns that were uh, uh, ventilated, and could you share those with us? Uh, is there any concern at all about whether your research could actually be turned against itself and the dark arts could be made even darker? Yeah, good, good question, good question. So, so on the first point, I mean, you know, people can, can read about uh, the, the Cambridge Analytica story, of course. Um, so I, I think what happened there is that uh, 
when data is being sold to you know political parties on a on a private level through someone's private enterprise to try to target people with ads um, that is you know trying to influence you in a way to form a political opinion now, regardless of, of what the level of involvement of the of the academic here was i think what's concerning uh, is that you know across the spectrum there are these companies um, that create messages to try to influence you without your awareness um, what we try to do is to help people create resistance to unwanted persuasion attempts right so it's the almost the exact opposite so what we're trying to do is to give people the tools to help them be less resist or be more resistant, right, and less susceptible to these sort of attempts to, to micro-target people based on your characteristics and try to influence you. So some of these concerns, for example, are about the idea that um, um, based on your Facebook clicks and your likes, um, they can figure out, you know, approximately with, you know, some level of accuracy what your personality type is or what your gender is uh, or, you know, what your favorite um, movie is and then try to target you with ads based on that information so that you're more likely to click on it. And there's some research that shows that they can make you click on stuff uh, based on your characteristics. What we're trying to do is to help people see those attempts um, and be more resistant uh, to being an un, you know, uh, basically an unwilling participant uh, in those sort of things. So I think that's, that's where the, uh, the comparison is. Uh, and it's not all bad. I mean, artificial intelligence is used to create book recommendations, right? Some people go to Amazon and they like being recommended a book based on their previous clicks. Some people don't, right, without their knowledge. But we don't think about the fact that, why are they recommending this book to me? Because you clicked on a bunch of stuff and now they're trying to figure out what you like. Um, and that's happening behind the scenes all the time. And I think it's concerning that we're not uh, aw always aware of this. Um, and I think people's behavior might be different if we are more aware. Um, yes, of course, this went through a rigorous uh, ethical review, and there's lots of different uh, ethical considerations that, that go into this. Um, and of course, this was all um, uh, approved. Um, this wasn't actually something that was raised by the Ethics Committee, but something people always ask me is, is isn't there a side effect that you're teaching people how to do fake news, essentially, right? Uh, aren't you making the dark arts potentially darker, which is a related question. Uh, my answer to this is twofold. One, people produce fake news often for political or for monetary reasons, the producers, right? None of those two incentives are really provided here in the game. People who produce, you know, these troll factories don't need our game to, to produce fake news, right? So I think, it's, I think it's unlikely. Following the metaphor, right, if I teach someone a few jokes, the probability they go on to be a stand-up comedian uh, is, is, is quite low, uh, unless I'm really funny. But, but you know, I, I would say that that's, uh, that that's a, a limiting factor. The other thing really is that starting your own fake news factory uh, involves something very different than, than what we're doing here. We're demystifying techniques that are out there that are already being used um, for people rather than teach them something you know, completely new, for example. Um, and you know, starting your own sort of troll farm um, is not something you learn in the game. So we've, we've not been very concerned about this, but we are tracking and we are interested in knowing what people do after they play the game and what they've learned and uh, how they might use this. And I think it, it is a valid point to try to collect data on this to see how people end up uh, using this. Um, and of course, with, with anything you invent, nuclear bomb, um, you know, to, to something as, you know, uh, a little smaller than, you know, the idea of a game, it can always be used for another purpose. And I think that's the downside of anything you invent. Um, but the idea here is that we can get ahead of the game uh, rather than uh, be a, a victim uh, of it. But of course, you know, I can't exclude that, you know, someone goes on and, uh, and uses the, uh, the insights for uh, for another purpose, but I think that's true for anything you put out there. Anything you write on the internet uh, could have an influence on someone you didn't intend. So uh, I think that's a risk that's worth taking if there is uh, a potential benefit. Have you done any work in the area of cybersecurity? Because uh, social engineering attacks are all based on disinformation and inoculating people against social engineering would stop their accounts and their money and other bits being taken from them. Um, yes, so do some, some projects and some consulting on um, cybersecurity or cyber attacks, social media attacks, um, which are, I should say, most of them are, have not incorporated the idea of inoculation, uh, which again is often involves, uh, there, there are some similar ideas to this, that's you know, trying to think out of what the response would be to a particular attack. Um, I think this is kind of a, 
an interesting way for people to shift their framing. It's often, okay, something's happened, now let's debunk it or let's correct it. And this exercise is more about what could happen in the future um, and how would you then respond to that preemptively and try to map out all of those scenarios and get prepared in a very proactive sense. Uh, and that is very much based on the principle of inoculation. Uh, so there are some projects around uh, uh, cyber attacks uh, where we try to help uh, people think through this issue. Um, now, with companies like WhatsApp, you know, we don't actually use any social network data from people, uh, for example. So the project with WhatsApp is we do our own research and it's independent and they have no say in it and they just sort of provide a, uh, um, no data to us. Uh, but the, the tools that we come up with might still be useful uh, for them in trying to improve their, um, their platform. Um, but clearly, I think the role of social media is very important in these sort of cyber uh, attacks and how social media is being used uh, to try to influence people. And I do think there's an interesting debate to be had between industry like Facebook and Twitter and Google um, and the scientific community. Um, because, you know, even though some unfortunate events uh, have happened, um, we don't know what they do with their data um, and, um, you know, what their data really shows. Um, and so it would be in the interest of science and in the interest of the public if we could all work together to try to solve some of those issues. And the collaboration with WhatsApp is about that very issue. And the same with, uh, with some governments. But you know, we all know uh, what, what happens when uh, you know, a, a certain organization takes control over uh, what's real and what's fake. And so instead of doing that, we're trying to help people at the individual level uh, to try to figure this out rather than to, you know, to be one sort of grand inoculator uh, scheme because I think that could be a potentially uh, uh, dangerous scenario. A lot of companies use um, social media influencers and buy in um, the services of social media influencers um, in order to sell products, goods or services. Is there an opportunity therefore in the future for pre-bunking to become a commercially viable enterprise? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, off the top of my head, I, I don't have a, an exact answer to, to that question. But I will say this, um, we do teach people about this in the game. So, you know, once you're, once you're floating your content, um, basically we tell people, hey, you know, it's being picked up, but it's going a bit slow. What you need is you need to recruit lots of bots to retweet your content. You know, how do you do it? You buy fake followers, you buy influencers, you buy bots. And, and this is part of the false, the false amplification part of the game. Um, where we show people the idea of false amplification, which is basically some issue nobody cares about, and then you blow it up through this sort of artificial support and artificial influencers that drive attention towards a particular issue, so that when it happens, people can hopefully recognize it and, and not be influenced by it. Um, whether pre-bunking can be uh, a commercial enterprise, um, I'm not so sure. So the game we've developed is free. It's, it's freely available to everyone to use. We, we don't, you know, the company that, that helped create this doesn't charge anything for it. It's a social impact game. Uh, we hope to provide these, these tools as educational material for free to um, um, organizations that have an interest in it. Uh, but, you know, connecting to the other point that somebody said about inoculation and how it can be used, there is this idea of meta-inoculation that's being explored. So you can try to inoculate against inoculation. Um, and we can get, you know, on a, on a very meta level with this, that it is possible to preemptively pre-bunk um, what's going to be pre-bunked. Uh, essentially, right? Uh, and it gets very complex that way. Um, I don't think anyone's done it, uh, but these are theoretical ideas that can be explored and, and we need to think about how that actually works. Hi, um, I really like your app. I think it's a sort of great, great idea. Um, and it seems like the only way out of this is inoculation and education, and that's what you're advocating for. Um, do you do you think that this sort of education, this media, sort of media theory, media literacy should go on the uh, school curriculum? Like, are the um, is the government going sort of far enough in uh, taking this seriously? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Uh, once again, and so we've, I can tell you a little about some, some trips that we've done to the uh, uh, Vice President's Office of the European Commission, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office here in the UK, 
the U.S. State Department and, and various governments to try to talk about this, uh, this issue. And, and by far, you know, the, the big focus is still on the idea of debunking and, and media literacy uh, and not on these sort of novel ways to try to tackle this issue. And I do think we've made some headway in at least offering uh, a counter perspective to, to what other ideas are out there. And this is, you know, of course, part of, uh, of the game. And we've shared these results uh, uh, um, with government officials. And so we're not storing any data from people, by the way. It's just your responses to these sort of fake and real questions. Uh, people opt in, give consent to participate in this research, and we don't really record uh, anything else. Um, but it does allow us to evaluate the, the impact of the game. Um, but I do think it's, it's slightly different from traditional education, right? So instead of giving people the facts and sort of telling them this is, this is the right answer or you, know, you need to check your sources, um, we think the answer lies in this sort of active experiential approach. The game is like a big simulation machine. The engine's adaptable, we can update the scenarios, we can update the techniques, um, and we can make it more fun and engaging for people by actually giving you an experience of what it would be like to do something. And I think the, the, the sort of the, I think it was Mark Twain once who once said, you know, a man who carries a cat by the tail learns something he can learn in no other way. Uh, I hope no one does that, uh, but I think the metaphor is real um, in the sense that, you know, experience is a, is a powerful teacher. And so we do think that some of these tools are useful. Governments, um, you know, I, I can say the Foreign Office, they did translate it into 15 languages. They were intrigued by, by the idea. They think it's important. They want to do outreach and education. So I do think it's being picked up now by, by governments as an alternative tool, um, you know, next to the traditional tools of debunking and fact-checking that, uh, that we can use. I'm hopeful um, that this will be explored as a, um, as a potential opportunity. Um, and as the, you know, as the issues change, for example, deep fakes, we can adjust the game to try to keep up with it, um, hopefully preemptively, um, to try to knock the people against novel ways in which mi the misinformation landscape is evolving. Um, I was just wondering who your target audience was for, for your game, because to me it seems it's targeted at young adults, teenagers, um, and how obviously that has implications for how the inoculation spreads. Um, so I was just wondering what your, yeah your target audience was and how that affects your research? Yeah, that's a good question. So, so the typical audience of the, of, the, of the main English version of the game is between 16 and, and you know, 35, probably. Um, but uh, that's not to say that we, we've had people play the game who are in their 80s, some who are in their 90s, uh, who found it an enjoyable experience. Uh, so the game is freely available to, to everyone. We do have people from all, all walks of life and all ages who play the game and who've shown, uh, you know, positive learning effects uh, in the game. Um, but I think you're right in that there is some, uh, you know, the fact that it uses social media maybe taps into a particular uh, generation more than, uh, uh, more than others. Um, so that's the, the main version of the game. We've created a special version for younger uh, kids, you know, below the age of 16 and sometimes even much younger called Bad News Junior and the content's much more suitable uh, for junior audience. Um, we're thinking about creating different versions of the game for different audiences. So we're talking to, um, um, you know, other companies um, about a version that's, that's sort of targeted more at misinformation on the internet more generally, uh, and to create two versions, uh, one that's, you know, be your own sort of fake, build your own fake news empire, and the other is, is the sort of detective role maybe, that, you know, you're a detective and you, know, you need to sort of figure out uh, what's going on here um, that could draw in a wider audience of people who might want to choose the type of character that they want to play. Um, and so we're, we're, we are definitely thinking about creating different versions of the game that appeal to different audiences because the game, um, and ultimately the aim, is to, to reach all audiences, young, uh, both young and old. But of course we recognize that um, inoculation is particularly important um, from an early age, that when you go to school that you learn about some of these issues um, at, the, at the right age and the right curriculum and, and, and at the right point in the uh, educational uh, experience and not just, you know, uh, when, when you're already sort of 45 uh, and have, you know, uh, uh, I, I don't want to say no use for social media, but, uh, uh, right, but um, um, I'm the first to admit my mother is on Facebook. Um, and so I, I do think that um, um, there are differences in, in audiences, but we do try to create the, uh, the game in ways that appeal to all kinds of different audiences. Um, um, so the short answer is everyone, um, but, you know, people like playing different games, so we create different versions.